Let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word. We're going to begin with Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and then we will read John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47 now. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father, the works that your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality, implying that Jesus was. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So far the reading of God's most holy word, and we pray that the Lord would help us now uh, through the preaching of the word to apply it to our lives today. It has been a while now since we have been in the text of Genesis, uh, given that we took nine sermons to explore the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I think it would be good for us, therefore, to remember where we are in this book, which I will remind you is a highly structured book. Uh, The book of Genesis, remember, is divided into 11 parts. There is a prologue which spans from Genesis 1-1 through to 2-3. And in this prologue, we have a description of the creation of the heavens and the earth. 
And then there are ten sections after that prologue, each of them beginning with the phrase, these are the generations of, or something very similar to that. And we are currently in the first of these ten sections. Uh, Remember that in Genesis 2-4, we read these words, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It is not until Genesis 5.1 that we will again encounter this, this heading with the words, This is the book of the generations of Adam. And so we are now in this first of the ten sections of the book of Genesis. Each of these ten headings found in the book of Genesis names some person or persons and then tells us about their offspring. That is how these Headings function, the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, etc., etc. The one exception is the first of the ten headings, for there it is not a person named, but a place, namely the heavens and the earth. Again, Genesis 2.4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It should be remembered what the phrase, the heavens and earth, is referring to. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. What, what are the heavens and earth being referred to here in 2.4? And also back in Genesis 1.1. Earth, both in Genesis 1.1 and 2.4, is a reference to the earthly physical realm that is visible to us. It is the realm that we live in. It includes what we, we might call the heavens, that is the visible heavens, and the earth. Heaven, both in Genesis 1-1 and 2-4, is a reference to the heavenly spiritual realm, which is presently invisible to us. Remember that this is what is described to us at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens, that is the invisible spiritual realm, and the earth. Remember that the, the text of Scripture went on to describe the formation, not of the heavenly realm, but of the earthly realm in the days of creation. Therefore, this section that runs from Genesis 2-4 through to 5-1 tells us about that which descended from the earth and heavens which God created in the beginning. First, we learn that God formed Adam out of the earth. Do you remember this? Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. After this, God formed Eve from Adam, Genesis 2-21-22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And so what was generated from the earth? What descended from the earthly realm? Well, Genesis 2, 4 through 25 reveals that the God of heaven brought plants and animals, birds and fish, and supremely Adam and Eve forth from what? What did he bring them forth from? He brought them forth from the earth. We should also remember that God entered into a covenant with the man that He had made after placing Adam in the garden and after having given him access to all the plants and trees to have his food, He strictly forbid him from eating from one tree 
That is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is found in Genesis 3, 15 through 17. And he also gave Adam a task. Adam was to work and keep the garden. This he was to do for a time, and having successfully accomplished his work, he would have been permitted to eat from the tree of life, and he would have entered into glory. What I am saying is that Genesis 2.4 through to 3.1 describes to us the generations of the earth. It, it, it describes to us that which the God of heaven brought forth from the earth. And what did he bring forth from the earth? Well, among other things, he brought forth from the earth Adam and Eve, and he entered into a covenant of life with them. But what about the generations of the heavens. Remember, the section has the heading, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. What is it that happened in the heavenly realm as it pertains to the story of Holy Scripture? Now, it must be admitted that our knowledge of the history of the heavenly realm is much more limited than our knowledge of the history of the earthly realm. And in fact, the story of, of Scripture will go on to, to focus uh, supremely upon the history of, of the earthly realm, God's redemptive work in this place, uh, in, on, on, on the earth. And, and our knowledge of the heavenly realm, uh, what it is that has happened there, is much more limited, but God does not leave us entirely in the dark. His Word does reveal to us something of the history of heaven. We know that the heavenly realm was created by God on day one of creation. We know that heaven is God's throne. The earth is His footstool. Heaven is where God's glory is shown forth in splendor. We know that heaven is filled with heavenly hosts. That is to say, angels, seraphim and cherubim. They are ministers that stand before God Almighty. And we also know that there was at one point a rebellion in heaven. Jude 6 refers to this rebellion, saying, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. In 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul refers to the angels who are now in heaven as elect angels, indicating that there are also angels who are non-elect and fallen. The scriptures refer to these fallen angels as demons. The prince of these demons is called by many names. He is called Satan. He is called the devil. He is called Beelzebub. And he is also called Lucifer. In Isaiah 14, we find a very interesting passage. It is, in fact, an oracle concerning the fall of the once powerful king of Babylon. Uh, that is clear. But most would also agree that the fall of this earthly king is stated in language that is reminiscent of the fall of Satan himself, establishing a similitude between the fall of these two powerful beings, one a human and earthly king and the other uh, angelic. Uh, listen to Isaiah 14, 12-16, and keep in mind that this passage is primarily about the fall of the king of Babylon, but it is stated in such a way to remind us or give us some insight into the fall of Satan himself. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. I think the New King James translates this as Lucifer. 
O how you are fallen from heaven, O day star or Lucifer, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? And so on and so forth, the passage goes. So the scriptures are clear that there was a rebellion in the realm of heaven. Some of the angels fell, whereas others kept their proper position as servants of the living God. And it appears that Satan himself led this rebellion being motivated by envy and by pride. But when did this rebellion in the realm of heaven occur? That is the question. Have you ever wondered that? When exactly did this rebellion in the realm of heaven occur? And the answer is that it happened at some point between the end of day six of creation and the temptation of Adam and Eve as it is described to us here in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and following. In the beginning, God created the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. The earth, remember, was at first without form and void and dark. Job 38.7 tells us that the angels of heaven witnessed the formation of the earth as it is described to us in Genesis 1. And what did they do except shout for joy when they saw it? So the angels, that is the heavenly beings, were present to witness the formation of the earthly realm as it is described to us in Genesis chapter 1. They already existed. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the, earth, the heavenly spiritual invisible realm, and that realm was filled immediately, it seems, with angels. And they watched as God brought the earth into its present form. They saw it. They must have been created on the first day of creation. And at the end of day six, we are told that God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. It was just as it was supposed to be. Genesis 1, verse 31. Everything was, as, everything was good in the heavenly realm that God made, and also in the earthly realm by the end of day six of creation. But then in Genesis 3.1, we read these words, and they should startle us a bit. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here we see that for the first time, not everything is as it was supposed to be. Uh, there is a rebel in God's creation. Now it is impossible to know for sure how much time elapsed from day six of creation to this act of treason on the part of one of God's creatures. I, I tend to think that it was not long at all. But the important thing to notice is that in Genesis 3.1 we find a description of an act of rebellion. One of God's creatures is here found rebelling against its maker. In Genesis 3.1, we read the words, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. I think this is a very interesting introduction to the narrative that will follow. Uh, clearly, this statement is a reference to a literal snake. The serpent, 
snakes, when compared to all of the other beasts of the field, is more crafty. Uh, Crafty is an appropriate word to use when describing the snake. Uh, To be crafty is to be subtle and shrewd. The Hebrew word translated by the English word crafty does not carry with it a positive or negative connotation. Uh, To be crafty, uh, you you may be either good or evil, I suppose. In fact, the same Hebrew word is used throughout the Proverbs to describe one who is wise. The wise person is crafty, subtle, shrewd in in a way. Craftiness, therefore, can be used for good, and it might also be used for evil. Remember how Christ himself taught his disciples, saying, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as what? Serpents and innocent as doves. So be shrewd, crafty, wise, but not evil. Be innocent as doves. Genesis 3.1 is a simple and straightforward statement concerning snakes. Snakes are crafty creatures. They move in very quietly, don't they? They're very well camouflaged. I remember one day we were sitting out on our back patio at at our previous home, and Damon, my son, looks down into the ivy there and says, A snake! We were all sitting there right on the edge of the deck, and no one noticed it, of course, until somehow he did. It was a rattlesnake sitting right below, I think, where my mom was sitting at the time. My goodness, you know. The thing moved in. We, we didn't hear it. Uh, this is how snakes are. They are crafty creatures. They move in quietly. They are well camouflaged. They are opportunistic predators who lie in wait for their prey. They are even mesmerizing. It is no wonder then that Satan, a heavenly and spiritual being, would use the snake, an earthly creature, to bring temptation to Adam and Eve. It corresponded to his character. It corresponded to his tactics. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Uh, We find this in the second half of verse 1. He speaks, the serpent speaks, this should be surprising to us. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Um, This narrative that we are considering today, it's very brief, but it is packed full of meaning. I want you to notice a few things about the second half of verse 1 and what it is that the serpent had to say to Eve. One, notice that the person at work within the serpent is not named. Clearly, some power is at work within the snake, for snakes do not ordinarily speak. But the person is not named, for he is not worthy of it. He is only called a snake, a serpent. Uh, The rest of the narrative, and indeed the rest of Scripture, will make it clear that this is the voice of Lucifer. Two, notice that this is the first voice heard in the narrative that opposes God and His sovereign rule. Up until this point, everything was good, indeed very good. Three, notice that the serpent spoke not to Adam, but to Eve. And this is very significant, given that Adam was the one who was given the task to work and to keep the garden, Genesis 2.15. Eve was to function as his helper. And so here the craftiness of the evil one is put on display, isn't it? He subtly entered into the garden, appearing, it seems, out of nowhere. Do you notice how quickly he enters into the narrative of Genesis? Out of nowhere he appears. And he approached 
not Adam, but the woman. He approached her, avoiding, it seems, Adam, the federal head. He waited until he could approach her without Adam noticing, perhaps. And it is true that Eve could have stomped the head of the serpent. She also had that responsibility as Adam's helper. She could have resisted the temptation herself or alerted her husband concerning the intruder. But the tactic of the evil one is easy to see, isn't it? He he tempted Adam, not directly, but through his wife. And so the serpent was very crafty in his approach. For, notice the words of the serpent. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so what does the serpent do except immediately begin to call into question God's word? He begins to undermine the authority, the reliability of of God's word. Did God actually say, he asks. And the serpent, notice, also misquoted God ever so slightly. He misquoted God ever so slightly. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so can you recognize the subtlety of the serpent? He began to call into question the goodness of And the character of God. That is what he does. He begins to call into question the goodness and the character of God. And this he does not directly, but by way of implication and by way of suggestion. Buried within the serpent's carefully crafted question was the subtle suggestion that perhaps God was too harsh. Perhaps God was unreasonable and not particularly interested in the ultimate good Of Adam and Eve. Do you see the subtle suggestion of the serpent? Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see? Did God say that, by the way? Uh, Eve will soon set him straight, uh, which is to her credit. God did not say that. In fact, what God said is, You may eat of every tree of the garden except this one. But here we we see the tactic of the evil one. And I hope that you are beginning to understand the purpose of this text. More than a straightforward retelling of the temptation of the first man and woman, this text also gives us insight into the character and the tactics of the evil one. Do you see it? The tactics that he used then are the same tactics that he uses to this present day. Satan is still eager to undermine our confidence in God's word, and to erode our trust in God as one who is good and generous, gracious and kind to His creatures. This He often does, notice, in subtle and cunning ways, by speaking half-truths and by way of suggestion. I know for sure that you, brothers and sisters, have heard His voice, not audibly, but perhaps In the quiet of your own mind, you have heard His voice as He begins to tempt you to distrust God's Word and to begin to question the goodness and character of God Almighty. In Genesis 3, verses 2 through 3, we find the woman's reply. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Notice a few things about Eve's reply. One, she does correct the serpent. The serpent suggested that God forbid the man and the woman from eating from any of the trees of the garden. And so, 
The serpent is essentially saying this, look at how stingy and oppressive your God is. That was the suggestion of the serpent. He has set you down in the midst of this lush and fruitful garden, and he has placed restrictions on you. Restrictions that are unreasonable, that are unfair. He's holding out on you. That was the suggestion of the serpent. And so Eve was right to say, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So far, so good, I suppose. Two, notice that Eve does begin to slip a bit as she minimizes God's generosity. For what did God actually say to Adam? Look at Genesis 2.16. You should be near to it. It's just back a page, perhaps. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Eve did omit the word every, didn't she? As she began to quote God's word back to the serpent. And I think this is significant. She begins to minimize God's generosity just a bit. Three, notice that Eve slips even more when she adds to God's word, saying, Neither shall you touch it lest you die. If you pay careful attention to the narrative of Genesis, never did God command Adam and Eve not to touch that tree, only that they should not eat of it. And so we see that Eve is beginning to slip here. She did correct the serpent, but she is found minimizing God's generosity, omitting the word every when quoting God's word. And she begins also to to exaggerate God's uh, strictness, His severity. She begins to add to the law of God, doesn't she? She is appearing to be a legalist uh, when she says, God told us not to touch it lest you die. God never said that. And so it is apparent that Eve was on a dangerous path. Uh, She should have been much more firm with the serpent from the beginning. In fact, she should have done what Christ did when tempted by the evil one in the wilderness. And what did Christ do in the wilderness when he was tempted by the evil one? Well, three times over he replied to the lies and the distortions of Satan with the words, It is written. It is written. And finally, what did he say to the evil one? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. This is what Eve should have done. She should have been much more careful and direct with the serpent, and she should have said to him, Be gone, Satan. Adam and I are going to worship the Lord our God and Him alone. So Eve was far too gentle with the serpent. She allowed him to speak, she gave him a hearing, and her devotion to God began to slip. She began ever so slightly to minimize the goodness of God and to exaggerate His severity. I wonder if some of you are not on the same path even now. I do wonder it. If you have not listened to the voice of the evil one, if you have not listened to the lies of the evil one, have you failed to confront the voice of the evil one with the word of God? And have you begun to doubt that God is indeed good and gracious, generous and kind? His tactics are the same today as they were eons ago. ago. Satan is concerned to undermine our confidence in God's word and in his character. In verse 5, the serpent replies to the woman with these words, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So notice that the tactics of the evil one have transitioned from being sly and subtle to aggressive and direct. 
Just as a snake at first moves slowly as it waits for its prey and then quickly strikes when the moment is right, so too the evil one will tempt us subtly, and only after he has brought us to a vulnerable place will he deliver his deadly blow. This is how he operates, like a snake, like a serpent. The interesting thing about the words of Satan in verse 5 is that they do contain truth. They contain half-truths, mind you, but the words of the serpent do contain truth. They are twisted truths, but they are truths nonetheless. The words of Satan will prove to be true in a way. You will not surely die, he said to Eve. Notice how direct he is now. Before it was, has God actually said, now it is, you will not surely die. It's a direct challenge to God's word. God said they would die. Satan says, you will not surely die. But do you see how there was some truth in what the serpent had to say? God said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17 But as we progress in the narrative, we will find that Adam, though he would eat of the forbidden fruit, did not die until he was 930 years old. He lived a very long life. So in a way, the serpent was right, wasn't he? Adam and Eve did not immediately die. Of course, he was wrong in two respects. One, Adam would eventually die. And two, Adam did die in the day that he ate of the forbidden fruit. He died spiritually, having been cast out of the garden from the presence of God. This is why Paul could write to the Christians who were alive physically in Ephesus and say this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. What, what did Paul mean by that? These Christians were alive physically. They, they were breathing. They were interacting with Paul, reading his letter, comprehending it. They were alive physically, but spiritually they were dead pr because of sin prior to being brought to faith in Christ. Now, this was true of Adam also. Though he would live for 930 years, he truly died in the day that he ate of the forbidden fruit. His relationship with God was severed. He entered into a state of sin. He was banished from the garden paradise of God, kept from the tree of life. Adam died in the, the day that he ate from uh, the forbidden fruit. Uh, Satan said, you will not surely die. It was a half-truth. He was right in some respects. He would not immediately, immediately die physically. But ultimately, he was wrong. He was speaking lies. And some of you are living in this state even now, this state of death. You are alive according to the flesh, but spiritually you are dead because of your sin. The gospel is that Christ can make you alive. Christ can make you alive. He can give us new life, for He has undone what the serpent and what Adam did so long ago. The serpent then said, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you hear the temptation here? Um, you're going to be like God when you eat of the forbidden fruit. Your eyes are going to be opened. You will experience enlightenment. Uh, this statement also contains uh, some truth. Were the eyes of Adam and Eve opened when they ate the forbidden fruit? 
Were they opened? The answer is yes. The eyes of Adam and Eve were opened, just as the serpent said, but not in the way they expected. After eating of the fruit, we read in verse, verse 7 that the eyes of both were opened, and what happened is that they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were open when they ate, but not unto enlightenment, as the, spirit, the serpent had suggested. Instead, their eyes were opened unto shame. And did Adam and Eve become like God, knowing good and evil when they ate? Well, in a sense, they did. But again, not as they expected. The suggestion of the serpent was that by eating of the forbidden tree, the first man and woman would come to experience something greater than what they had experienced up to that point. The implied accusation against God was that He was holding out on them. God forbid them from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because He knew that if they ate of it, they would become as powerful as Him. In essence, the evil one managed to make the tree of the knowledge of good and evil seem as if it were in fact the tree of life. He, he turned everything on its head. He managed to convince the first couple of this very thing. Satan convinced the couple that by eating of the forbidden tree and by abstaining from the tree of life, they would advance to a higher order of life. God was holding out on them, was the accusation. The opposite of, of what he said was the truth. What Adam and Eve needed to do was to cast off the bonds of their oppressive God and to decide for themselves what is right and wrong. But only after obtaining this knowledge would they be truly enlightened and become gods themselves. This should sound familiar to you. This is the same lie that the world has bought into to this present day, seeking after enlightenment, seeking after life, seeking after glory, but apart from God, by casting off His bonds, being freed from Him, you see. This is the way that the world lives. As the narrative unfolds, it will become clear that the serpent was a liar. Adam and Eve did not become like God in the way they expected. Instead, the image of God that was theirs by creation was greatly marred. After eating, they were Still human, but they were fallen humans, given over to death. Clearly, Satan was wrong. But notice that his words were proven to be true in a sense. In 3.22 we read, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So did you, did you hear the words of the Lord God? He says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So there is a sense in which Adam and Eve became like God when they ate, but again, not as they expected. How did they become like God when they ate? Well, they took to themselves a right that only God should have, that is, to determine that which is good and that which is evil. In a sense, they became like God. In this sense, they became like God. The end, though, was death and not life. All who are not in Christ live this way continually, brothers and sisters, deciding for themselves what is true and what is false, and what is right and what is wrong. The one who rejects God, the one who rejects Christ, lives in this way continually. They say, we will decide for ourselves what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. 
they're like little gods, aren't they? they? They attempt to determine their own destiny. They attempt to make their own path, their own way. And they do this without giving consideration to the God who made them. But the one who is in Christ, the child of God, is the one who submits to God in all things. We confess by the grace of God that His word is true and that His ways are indeed right. This is what Adam and Eve should have done in the beginning. They should have banished that serpent from the garden. They should have stomped his head. They should have said, we will remain faithful to our God and not go the way you are suggesting. Now, brothers and sisters, what difference should this little narrative, only five verses, so succinct, but filled with meaning, what difference should this little narrative make in our lives today? This is more than a story of the temptation of Adam and Eve. In this brief story, we do see the tactics of the evil one on display. The child of God would be wise to remember that the evil one is still at work within the world and that he is crafty. His tactics are the same to this present day. He will seek to undermine God's word. He will seek to cause you to question whether or not God's word is indeed true. And he is at work attacking some of you strongly in this way even now. Do you give attention to God's word? Do you read it? Do you listen to it preach? Do you study it? Do you seek to live in constant obedience to it? Or do you question its value? Do you question its truthfulness? He will also call into question God's goodness towards you. And I know that the evil one tempts even the children of God powerfully in this way. It may be that you have experienced difficulty in your life. You have experienced heartaches of various kinds, trials and tribulations. What does God's Word say about the difficulties that we face in this life? What does God's Word have to say about our trials and tribulations? Well, if we are children of God, we are to walk in this world with confidence, knowing that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purposes. We are indeed to rejoice in the trials and tribulations that we face, not in the trials and tribulations themselves. No one rejoices in those. But in the fact that our God is able to bring good even out of the trials and tribulations that we face. This is what we are to believe, for God's Word says it. But what does the evil one do? He begins to speak to us and say, Do you see what you're going through? Do you see how you're suffering? How could it be that God loves you? He says that He loves you. He says that He has your best interest in mind and His glory, but He does not. In fact, He is against you. Abandon Him, you see. It's the same tactic. It's the same question, the same implication being made by the evil one, even to this present day. He will suggest that the good life, in fact, is found when we cast off God's restraints and live according to our own standards. I know there are some psalms that actually ask this question. The psalmist looks out upon the wicked and the way that the wicked prosper, and he thinks, how how could it be? I, I look and I see the godly of this world, those who are faithful to the things of God, they're poor and they're suffering and yet the wicked, they, they seem to be prospering always, you know. And sometimes you might even begin to think this way. Perhaps, perhaps the good life is found by casting off the restraints of God, ignoring His law and going my own way. Perhaps there is where abundant life is found. Uh, but indeed, we need to be convinced and resolute in our determination that the good life, abundant life, is found in Christ and in Christ alone.
It may be that we suffer trial and tribulation in this world, but we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. The way of the evil one is, in the end, the way of death. Abundant life is found in Christ as we walk in obedience to His commandments. Our first parents fell. We too have fallen and will fall for the lies of Satan. But we should remember that Christ, who is the second Adam, stood strong on our behalf, saying, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Where Adam and Eve failed, Christ has succeeded. This He did faithfully to the end of His life. When He died, He died not for His own sins, but for the sins of those given to Him by the Father from all eternity, so that through faith in Him, we might have life in His name. And this is why we rejoice. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word, which is a light to our feet. We pray that You would give us the ability to understand Your Word, to receive it even in the heart, and to live according to it day by day. Father, we know that the evil one is still at work in this world to keep sinners in bondage, to blind their eyes, to harden their hearts even further. We even know that He is at work uh, tempting us to walk away from You, Lord. Give us victory in Christ Jesus, we pray. May we know Your Word and believe it truly and live according to it. Uh, Father, have mercy upon us for Your glory and our good. It's in the name of Christ we say these things and all of God's people say, Amen.